Hello, and welcome to episode 39 of the Venture Games Podcast. I'm Chris Quaidu, a venture partner at Griffin Gaming Partners, one of the leading gaming-focused VC firms, and content acquisition lead at Andreessen-backed Carry First, the leading African mobile games publisher. Today, I'm joined by Mark Otero, co-founder and CEO at Azure Games. Mark is a gaming industry veteran with 15 years of experience in the gaming industry, working primarily on RPG games, and he's currently building his ninth RPG game at Azra. What's going on, Mark? Hey, Doug, glad to be on your show. Sure, thanks for joining me. So to kick things off, you know, for those folks out there who are less familiar with you, do you mind just walking through your background and specifically, you know, what you were up to before starting Azra? Yeah, so I'm known in the industry for only making RPG games, Mm -hmm. but to be very specific, a subgenre of RPG games called collectibles and combat RPGs. You know, these are games like Pokemon, Star Wars, Galaxy of Heroes, Jinshin. When you look past the layer, these are really games about building up your collectibles, upgrading them, testing their efficacy in combat. And then the RPG component is, is you're taking a group of heroes on an adventure, and upgrading them and equipping them so that they can be successful. Mm-hmm. But you know, that's actually not who I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I grew up in South Korea and uh, in a very, very modest area of town called Weejeonbu, mm-hmm. which was directly across from a military base. And I share that with you because most people in the East, you know, their first contact with literature at mm-hmm. a young age, is anime mm-hmm. comics and anime stories. And so it just so happened that growing up in the East and right next to a military base, my first access to literature at a readable age was Dungeons and Dragons, mm-hmm. and then eventually Battletech. In other words, Western literature. Yeah. And so when you look at me, you, 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 would, you would think this is an Asian guy, at least <laughs> on the surface level, <laughs> who likes anime wafus and his bandos. <laughs> well, I think that's really interesting. Most of my inspiration came from the Western literature, Mm. uh, books like Conan the Barbarian, as well as what I just shared earlier. Mm -hmm. And so early on in those days, I couldn't read very well, especially Mm -hmm. the English language. And so I taught myself how to read. And I had a dictionary next to me, which was really difficult. (laughs) But I was so I I was so mesmerized by the idea that there's this other world that you can with rules, if you understood the rules, you can create your own stories and mm-hmm. have unlimited storytelling. And so I I got into a lot of trouble in school because mm-hmm. I'd bring these books with me in my backpack and uh, would always draw on every single page of homework that I turned in and got in a lot of trouble for that. It was because <laughs> my mind was always in a different realm. Mm-hmm. And playing RPG games, being a nun- dungeon master for over a decade, all the way through my freshman year in college, I've always had an immense appreciation for RPG games. Mm -hmm. And so that's what eventually led me to becoming a game builder for RPGs. And so I thought that bit of history would be helpful. You know, why is this crazy guy only focused on RPG (laughs) games? What's his story? So that's my, that's my origin story. Awesome. And then do you want to just talk about what you were working on at Click Nation and then what eventually took you to EA? Yeah, so I I had a great job for a uh, very large money manager, which I'm extremely grateful for. Mm -hmm. However, I didn't feel like I was pursuing my childhood dreams. Mm -hmm. And what led me to getting a computer science degree uh, as an undergrad, and that I got a computer science degree because I wanted to make games. Mm -hmm. And so I had a bit of an early midlife crisis in my late 20s and early 30s. I said, you know, I'm making really good money. I've got a house. I'm getting dates on a regular basis. <laughs> I have everything that a young man could possibly want. Mm-hmm. And yet I am feeling in my soul dissatisfied. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to begin just saving my money. I sold my house, moved in with my mom. Mm-hmm. And I spent six months just doing really deep work on myself about what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And so... I opened a yogurt shop, (laughs) (laughs) which has nothing to do with game. And I opened Sacramento's first premier yogurt shop called Mm -hmm. Mochi Yogurt. And it became a hit. Why did I open a yogurt shop? I needed a business that was low barriers to entry. 
people love yogurts. They love mm -hmm. Froyo. Sacramento gets some ridiculously hot days. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, I need something to sustain myself so I, so I can eventually figure something out. Mm -hmm. And on the second floor of this yogurt shop, I started to build apps. So I built 30 apps and they all wow. failed. <laughs> <laughs> and they were terrible apps that basically <laughs> spammed your social channels. Mm -hmm. With terrible things, you know, to share with your friend and do terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was absolutely worthless. But I learned some interesting things. I was like, okay, this isn't the reason why I I sold my house, built this very successful yogurt business. Mm -hmm. I was like, you know what, the thirty first app is going to be a game. Mm -hmm. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to figure it out. So I read just about every single game design book you can imagine, and most of them were pretty bad. <laughs> and I drew upon my dungeon master experience. Mm -hmm. And for several months between serving yogurt cups, going upstairs, I drafted my first game design mm -hmm. uh, document for a game called Superhero City. Mm -hmm. And I wanted that game to be a mirror of our world where people were inadvertently getting superpowers. Mm -hmm. And uh, that game, uh, after about six months worth of development, ended up doing exceptionally well. Mm -hmm. And so a month after launch, I got a call from my co-founder. He goes, Mark, we made $300 today. <laughs> I was like, that's kind of cool. The next day, you know, we made several hundred dollars. And then a month later, $1,000 a day, every day. Yeah. Then a month after that, several thousand dollars a day, every mm -hmm. day. Then within six months, twenty dollars to $30,000 a day, every day. And suddenly awesome. I was like, okay, whoa, we figured something out. Mm -hmm. And these were janky ass games. <laughs> I mean, they look terrible. Yeah. It was a type of game where I wouldn't even share with my friends because... <laughs> The art was so terrible. Yeah. However, the mathematics within the game and the way it spoke to an unmet, fulfilled need mm -hmm. and many people's lives where they felt like they were empowered, you know, to play the game and role play these janky superheroes <laughs> in our world. I learned something mm -hmm. about the psychology of unmet needs and fulfilling that need. Mm -hmm. And so it was a breakthrough for me. And I grew very insecure from that first success because mm -hmm. even within my network, people are saying, oh, you just got lucky. It's a one hit wonder. Yeah. You're not going to be able to repeat it. And I'm like, hmm, they're probably right, <laughs> but they're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and so I designed my next game in two weeks, launched it in two and a half months. And it was just as successful as my first game, but two mm -hmm. times faster. And so now, you know, we're doing 50 $70,000 a day every day mm -hmm. at the end of the first year of operating the business. And I began to grow more confident about my understanding of the psychology of gaming, why people could play some games and not others, mm -hmm. and, and developing competency and mastery around my subgenre of game making. So the TLDR is, it's a game that I can make because it's heavily science-based, numerical-based, mm -hmm. mathematical, strategy-based. And two, you can have really janky art and still do well. And so that's how I got my foot into, I guess, what you would say, commercial games. Mm -hmm. What are some of the games that you are playing today, if you are a gamer today, you know, in the, the time you have outside of work? And in addition to D&D, what are some of the video games actually that have inspired you sort of throughout your career? So going back to the mid 80s, I saw my first computer game and it was Ultima 2. <laughs> By today's standards, unplayable. <laughs> but back in the mid 80s, if you had a computer, you were considered one of the lucky ones. Mm -hmm. And so I remember seeing that. I'm like, whoa, there's this 2D image moving around this world and killing things mm -hmm. with very little, with no animations mm -hmm. and maybe some interesting VFX for the time. And that game is what got me to beg my mother <laughs> to get me a Commodore 64. Mm -hmm. And so it was Ultima 2, Ultima 4, Bard's Tale. Then Pool of Radiance came out and blew my head apart. <laughs> and it was because it was the first game that I had ever played that had the type of depth and breadth of what I considered was an RPG game. And it did something no other game had done before. And that was it had authentically mapped the second edition Dungeons and Dragons rules into a game. Mm -hmm. It changed my life. 
that's when I knew I wanted to be a game maker. Mm -hmm. And then it was Baldur's Gate from Bioware. And (laughs) I got into so much trouble because that game came out when I was in college Mm -hmm. and I missed a bunch of class. And all I did was play that game every day. Yeah. And I was like, that was the second game that elevated Mm party-based RPGs and also authentically mapped the rules from Dungeons Dragons to a video game. Mm -hmm. It blew me away. And I said, I wish one day Bioware would hire me. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? And that's a funny story because Cook Nation's success ended up drawing three companies that were interested in acquiring us. Mm -hmm. And I decided to go with Electronic Arts because I was tired of making shitty looking games Mm -hmm. that made a lot of money. I thought, what happens if we can improve the user's experience by changing the user experience visual audio layer into something that's beautiful? And you combine that with a deep understanding of motivations and the psychology of of unmet needs being met, can that lead to a blockbuster? Mm -hmm. And that eventually became Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes. Yeah my eighth collectibles and combat RPG game. So I'm a one trick pony <laughs> that learns a new trick with every new <laughs> type of game. So for me, the one RPG game that I remember probably the most fondly, like by far is Skyrim. Historically, actually like growing up, I wasn't a huge, huge RPG player, but Skyrim I think is like one of the closest things to a perfect game that I've ever played. You know, I still think mm-hmm. about it like today and the game is like 12 years old. At this point, and you know, unfortunately, I don't think its sequel is coming out at least for the next couple of years. You know, but I'm super, super excited for the sequel to that. But la- last thing before we move on from your background, do you want to just talk a little bit about Galaxy of Heroes? Yeah, Galaxy of Heroes. You know, there's the the sausage making story, which is messy, <laughs> and then there's the glamorous optical story of its great success. Which story do you want to hear? Your, <laughs> whichever you think is better. You know, building Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes was, was, you know, who who didn't know of Star Wars? Like, mm-hmm. who didn't grow up playing, you know, Star Wars toys or watching the movies? And so, first of all, it was such a great honor. Mm-hmm. And it was almost a moment of disbelief. Yeah. That, you know, I get to work with a very talented team and with the support of EA to work on something like that. Like, mm-hmm. that was just, it was surreal and unreal to me. And... What was a real cool thing about working in the game is I got an early copy of the script for one Mm -hmm. of the Star Wars movies before it came out in 2015. And it was fascinating reading the script and knowing what was going to be in the script Mm -hmm. and and then watching the movie and to see how it was different. And what I learned from that is, wow, here's a written document with a bunch Mm -hmm. of scribble marks everywhere with great intent and purpose. And then it ends up being visualized in this, you know, this visual storytelling movie. And and I was thinking to myself, how many people had to be involved Mm -hmm. in building this behemoth? And how is that possible? Mm -hmm. And I realized something. It's very similar to building a game. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to have a singular vision for your game. And in many ways, as a vision holder, you have to be a bit of a benevolent dictator. Mm -hmm. And it is through that intent and purpose and then how to carefully manage a team so that everyone collaborates and they feel empowered, Mm -hmm. but they're also moving in the same direction. Mm -hmm. By the way, that's not easy. And I suspect that's one of the reasons why some games that you've played and I've played in the past mm-hmm. can feel disjointed. Like there's some really good parts and there's some weird parts. Like yeah. where did this come from? <laughs> <laughs> like who put this in the game? All this to say is game making is so hard. This is why I only make one type of game. I cannot <laughs> imagine making another type of game. And I consider every game an absolute miracle. It is an absolute miracle because everyone has their own ideas and their own pet projects and yeah. desires that they want in the game. And (laughs) when you're directing one of these, you have to know how to allow collaborative and creative energy in a game. But at the same time, you have to balance that with what game builders actually want to do in Mm -hmm. the game, like in terms of their contribution. 
And that part is so difficult. You would think it gets easier with each and every game, but I haven't found that to be the case. By the way, that's an incredible story that you had early access to the Star Wars script. I'm sure you're one of the lucky relative <laughs> few. But, you know, it's clear from talking to you, you know, that storytelling is is very important to you. So, you know, first I want to give you a chance to just introduce Project Legends. And then after that, I just want to dive into, you know, what is the process like of actually, you know, building out the lore and building out this entire universe, right? Like RPGs are one of the deepest genres of games out there and RPG players yeah. expect nothing less, right? And so you obviously have to, you know, come up with this incredible universe you know things have to make sense within the rules of the universe yep. or else your players are not going to be very happy with you so why don't you just talk about you know what is project legends and what's your process like for building out this universe so i don't have a perfect process but i have some first principle rules and so project legends is we're going to announce the vision for the game towards the end of this year or at DICE in February, which is a gaming convention in Las Vegas, where we're going to unveil the name of our game. And it's one word. Mm-hmm. And you already know the name. I already, yeah, oh, okay. it's already being worldwide <laughs> trademarked. <laughs> nice. So I, I won't share that here yeah, sure. um, or the vision for that, mm-hmm. but I can talk about some of the mechanics sure. and some of the rules of building a, and crafting a new world. Mm-hmm. And so, first of all, I believe the best stories are the ones where it already fits our worldview, mm-hmm. where you're not having to educate players. The more you find yourself having to educate someone about what you're building, you're probably off target. Mm-hmm. That's one. Two, I believe that the best games, especially RPGs, another rule, should either provoke you or evoke you mm-hmm. throughout the game, where at times you risk being slightly offensive. Mm. And so that's the innovation risk that you take and we're happy to take it Mm -hmm. when you're trying to provoke or evoke an emotion. Mm -hmm. That's very important. Thirdly, I believe in the historical record of all the people who have come before us who are even better storytellers. Mm -hmm. For example, the story of Little Red Riding Hood (laughs) is an interesting, very interesting story. Um, And so she's an example where in many ways she is open source IP. Mm -hmm. Is that we look through history and the history's record for these great stories that have stood the test of time. Mm -hmm. Why? Because it's already reached product market fit. And so how do we take the greatest stories in the world for our audience? What can we learn from them? And is there an opportunity for us to leverage their lore so it's familiar? And then we make it our own by making it extraordinary. And so there's a lot of rules like this Mm -hmm. when making an RPG game that has to satisfy a lot of criteria whether it's a character that you collect in the game, whether it's a boss that you want to overcome and defeat. Mm -hmm. Once again, does it fit your worldview? When you immediately see them, does it fit your worldview? And you want to kill it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you want to kill it because it may provoke or evoke your animal spirits to come out emotionally Mm -hmm. to want to do some damage. (laughs) <laughs> so i think that's a really interesting point that you make actually so just you know tying into anime you know i think dragon ball z is probably the most popular global anime ever hopefully anime fans don't get too offended by that <laughs> and you know I, i'm not a huge anime guy in general but I, I grew up you know watching all of dragon ball dragon ball z uh gt i've even watched super including like many of the movies in theater and you know i think the story is incredible But I think a lot of people don't know, actually, even Dragon Ball Z's story is based on uh, Journey to the West, which is one of the like great Chinese novels and like one of the the greatest stories ever told. And so it is really interesting how like, you know, basically throughout history in all these different great media, you know, there is sort of some either retelling of stories or inspiration of some of the, the great stories of the past. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, let me give you some fun examples here. So step one, don't even think about the game you're making. Mm -hmm. Not important. Step one, tell me something interesting. For example, you killed my wife. (laughs) Therefore, I'm going to kill you. Step two, pick a context, a location. Mm -hmm. And so John Wick, you killed my wife. And it's in a modern setting with ninjas Mm -hmm. and swords. Braveheart, you killed my wife. And now it's in Scotland, Ireland against England. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. In other words, every story and every movie that you've seen that's been a hit follows this process. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And now you can never unsee that again. Mm -hmm. And what is Titanic? It's, It's a timeless story of a highbrow girl who falls in love with a lowbrow yeah. man mm-hmm. on the Titanic. Yeah. You see what just happened there? <laughs> Avatar, what's that about? Well, it's it's about a few things, right? It's about an indigenous population. Forget mm-hmm. about Avatar. Mm-hmm. It's an indigenous population that's basically being invaded by greedy capitalists mm-hmm. with higher technology. Yeah. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. And it's in an alien world. Mm-hmm. What most people don't know is that this process is one of the most important processes that you must take. Mm -hmm. But you start with an idea, an endearing idea that connects with people. Mm -hmm. And remember what I said initially, it must fit their worldview Mm -hmm. and that they can relate with it. Otherwise, you're just doing creative masturbation. (laughs) And so, you know, in other words, you're just fulfilling your needs Mm -hmm. and not necessarily the needs of the players that you're going to serve. That actually segues perfectly into uh, one of the questions I was going to ask you, right? And so you, you guys recently actually play tested Project Legends. And yeah, I'm sure obviously you got some feedback. I'm sure some of it was positive. I'm sure some of it less positive. Mm-hmm. And so how do you think about, you know, how much of this feedback am I going to incorporate going forward versus how much do I have to sort of stay the course with what I'm building, you know, given, given the confidence that you have from your experience? There were only two things that I was personally looking for. Mm-hmm. In an early play test like this, generally speaking, on a scale of 10, you want to score between six or seven. Mm-hmm. That means you're right on target. Now I'm going to provide context of what mm-hmm. I mean by that. Um, so I'm going to give you of what good looks like and what mm-hmm. great can look like. Is that when we're going into these things, we do it with incredible intent. Mm-hmm. One, Does the moment-to-moment combat and the experience of combat, is it satisfying? Mm -hmm. If you ask people if it's satisfying, you get bad answers and bad signal. You can't trust it. Mm -hmm. The only thing you can really trust is, do they want to play more? And so on a scale of one to 10, let's say you have 10 players. Mm -hmm. If six want to play more, it means you're generally on target, but you've got to fix your Mm moment-to-moment. If you get seven, it means you're really close to target. Mm -hmm. If you get eight or nine, it means you're almost bullseye. If you get 10, well, first of all, that's probably not going to happen in an early (laughs) test like this. So we scored a nine out of 10. And that is an exceptional result, by the way. Mm -hmm. That means the moment-to-moment combat fulfills a need for them where they're feeling enjoyment and entertainment and Mm -hmm. they want to play more. That's one. Two, coming out of the test, we asked them, What preferences of art style do they desire? Now, we Mm -hmm. already had one chosen. We already had one idea which was going to be better. We already knew the answer. (laughs) And so we received 75% liked one Mm -hmm. and 25% liked other. Mm -hmm. Everything else, don't care. (laughs) And so those two things were the most important things that I wanted to see coming Mm -hmm. out of this play test. For the most part, When you ask someone an open-ended question, you can get a lot of data, not necessarily a lot of good signal. Mm -hmm. So I've actually seen the art. Yeah, I think it looks great. But, you know, I would love to just hear what inspired you as far as the art direction. And, you know, how how did you get the confidence that you knew the answer to this question? And it's, this took us some time. Mm -hmm. This took some really deep, 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 uncomfortable probing. Remember what I said earlier about provoke or evoke? You can cross the line Mm -hmm. and offend. And so, you know, growing up as a child in the 70s and 80s, you know, had a lot of early access to artwork by like Frank Fazetta. Mm -hmm. 
And so Frank Fazetta was a great inspiration for us in terms of our art style. You know, it had it was really dramatic. It had high contrast between the the background and the character like Conan. You had beautiful sorcerers and enchantresses. And so we took the essence of that to inspire our art style. And when we did the art style test and it came back very favorable, we knew we we're right on target. But do you know why? No, why? So in today's climate, especially in Western markets, there's so much noise and there's so much mm -hmm. data. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, especially players, when they tell me something, I generally don't trust it mm -hmm. <laughs> because people have skin suits in life, mm -hmm. whether it's a skin suit to a specific ideology, whether it's left, right, center, it doesn't matter mm -hmm. to me. What's more important to me, going back to first principles, is what are you like? as a hunter and gatherer, your most primitive instincts, what are they? Because that cuts through all ideologies and you know what I'm talking about. And so when you start from the primitive desires, the lowest forms, by the way, whether it's passion, desire for someone or something, feeling powerful, does it matter what ideology it is? No. Mm -hmm. These are human needs and yeah. desires. And so when crafting these characters, we start with the carnal desires, literally, without being offensive. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. You know, I think that's one of the reasons why gaming for the longest time has been referred to as one of the things that can really unite all sorts of people, you know, all across the world regardless of, you know, what you're into, what you like or don't like, what you think about, you know, political stuff, whatever. For the most part, you know, gaming has sort of always united people. And, and that's, you know, clearly why it's the most popular medium out there. Yes, I think where games can get into some trouble is when they begin to lean towards either side. Me, I personally don't care. Mm. Uh, me, I'm more interested in it's It's almost like if you've watched Lucifer on Netflix. Mm. And if you haven't, you know, he's the devil, Lucifer Morningstar, and he manifests himself in human form in the modern world. Mm -hmm. And he has this power, you know, such an inspiration because it speaks to my soul on mm -hmm. first principles. And he asks people, usually the villains, what is it you most desire? And it's because what we're really saying is because you're going to lie to me if mm -hmm. I don't use my power to get it out of you. Mm -hmm. And it, you're going to lie to me for a variety of reasons. Maybe you're ashamed, maybe you're embarrassed, maybe you have a skin suit and a skin voice that identifies as a certain person, mm -hmm. but in your soul, <laughs> in your soul, you know, that's not who you are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so you could think of me as kind of like Lucifer. <laughs> and I asked the team and I, and I literally do, mm -hmm. what is it our players most desire? And one more thing on sort of the just design and, and vision for Project mm -hmm. Legends, right? So you guys have, spoken about and written about these three vision pillars. What are they in so far as you haven't covered them? And why should they matter to players? And then one thing actually, uh, you know, a little bit more on the gamer nerdy side that I had for you was what motivated the decision to, you know, allow players to like sort of instantly switch between the player characters that they're controlling, like in the middle of combat. I thought that was pretty innovative. So let me answer the second question first, because mm -hmm. that's the easier answer. Sure. The, the challenge with the mobile phone factor, mm -hmm. if you want party-based combat, mm -hmm. is that if you think of a game that has an RPG party-based combat from an isometric point of view, mm -hmm. it's what it really truly is, is a real-time RTS system, mm -hmm. right? So instead of having like 20 Zerg that you have to control or a giant globs of Zergs, like in a yeah. StarCraft II mm -hmm. RTS game, effectively... How do you, from a user experience, have the benefit of a party, but, but without being overwhelmed with a real-time yeah. RTS combat? Mm -hmm. And so the switching of the characters where they can layer in different types of benefits to the enemies and then catalyze it uh, for maximum potency and damage, that's what motivated us 
who want to do switching between different heroes. Mm -hmm. And we're testing a variety of formats of that. And so we're going to push the innovation there even further, mm -hmm. which we will reveal in Q1 of next year. And so that's the motivation behind mm -hmm. that is for the form factor. Two, when it comes to pillars, let me back up and say something that is, in my opinion, more important. Mm -hmm. And so what is Project Legends? You know, what, what is the unmet need we're looking to help fulfill? I think more than ever in today's world, people are kind of disgruntled for a variety mm -hmm. of reasons. They feel less agency in their lives. Instead of feeling empowered, they feel the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. And it appears to be every month there's a new existential crisis yeah. that's going to obliterate mankind because mankind has not earned the wisdom to wield that power. Mm -hmm. In other words, life is complicated <laughs> in this modern world. Yeah. And so what our game hopes to, to meet is first, let's identify that reality. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Do you believe that? Many people do. Not all of that, but some of that. Yeah. And so within our game world, you could think of it as what fantasy, what aspiration are we trying to fulfill? Mm -hmm. And ultimately, it's a power fantasy. You know, we don't come out and say that in the game. Mm -hmm. This is a power fantasy, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, but instead we help facilitate the, the player feeling empowered and to have agency, to feel competent and to develop mastery mm -hmm. through that single word of power. And then we have a lot of secondary needs that we also try to look to overlap. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe a love fantasy between one of the characters. That's mm -hmm. kind of interesting or some interesting stories around love that's platonic mm -hmm. between father and daughter, you know, between mother and son. Those to me are way more interesting than listing out here are the three <laughs> pillars. You know what I mean? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So for me, and it's because I'm speaking from a human need mm -hmm. perspective of emotional desires and yeah. fantasies of what, what do you really want? Mm -hmm. And so to me, that's way more important. So, you know, to make a game world this deep, you know, it's going to take a long time for, for players to explore all that, that your world has to offer. And so do you envision Project Legends as sort of one of these lifelong games? You know, like Skyrim, for example, is 12 years old. People are still playing it. Is that how you're thinking of Project Legends? Yes. And so Project Legends has been architected to be a live service, so free to play mm -hmm. game. You cannot buy the end game, by the way. You mm -hmm. can't buy it. You mm -hmm. have to earn it. And, and so we're going to release episodic content mm -hmm. on a very frequent basis. And our game world, we established what I shared earlier about how to set up a perspective, you know, whether highbrow versus lowbrow love mm -hmm. story, whether it's you killed my wife, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. John Wick and Braveheart. We have one of those moments at the very beginning of the game where it's emotionally evocative mm -hmm. and it's relatable and it's interesting. So we establish that early on within the game so that you have a perspective on the adventures that you take and why mm -hmm. you take them. In addition to all these other threats are trying to kill you or eat you. And so that's how we're thinking about it. And we're also exploring a very unique visual style that we haven't revealed mm -hmm. yet. And it, oh God, it's hard. <laughs> but I think we're about, we're less than two months away though from landing it. Mm -hmm. And so we want a game where you immediately you see, you're like, oh, this is a different game. Like, whoa, all right. Oh, that's an interesting story. Yeah. And it's a quick, quick story. I'm not talking like long 20 minutes or five minutes. Mm -hmm. It's quick. Mm -hmm. And so I, I spend a lot of time thinking about the onboarding and the first impressions and, and framing the emotional connective tissue to the player so that they the game is immediately relatable for many people not everyone not everyone's gonna love our game that's okay mm -hmm. yeah and so those are the type of things 
I spend a lot of deep, deep, deep thinking mm -hmm. on because they're some of the most important things in, in designing a world and an experience. That's awesome, man. You're you're doing a great job uh, getting folks excited. I you know I would love to get in on a play test if possible at some point. I mean, oh, we'd love to have you. Definitely, we'd oh, love okay, to have you play it. the next build of the game. Let's Perfect. do it, man. I'm down. Um, okay, I I think you're a great storyteller, you know. But I do have to ask some business questions, and then we yes. can get back to some fun stuff, right? Before. So you know, obviously, like to date, you guys have raised quite a bit of funding from a pretty impressive list of investors in. Today's environment, you know, there's obviously frequent articles about how difficult it is to raise venture capital, not just in gaming, you know, but in, in the broader tech and, and just venture landscape in general. And so what was your fundraising experience like? To be fair, you, you didn't necessarily raise your latest round in the most favorable environment, but what was your experience like? And then what advice do you have for folks who are trying to build in this environment, you know, where, where VCs may have their belt straps tightened a little bit more? Sure. Two questions in there. Mm -hmm. And I'll answer them in sequence about one, the fundraising experience, and then two, what advice I could provide. So let's talk about the first one. We were very fortunate, you know, to have raised from A16Z and NFX. And so mm -hmm. on A16Z side, it was Ariana Simpson and John Lai. And on NFX side, it was Gigi Levy-Weiss. And so the process of, of working with them on a potential partnership, which became a partnership, was one where we spent a lot of time getting to know each other. In the mm -hmm. same way, Chris, that you're asking me a lot of questions, yeah. it was very similar from them. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just here just talking, right? Yeah. And so we're getting a vibe check, mm -hmm. right? And then two... They do kind of like a competency mastery check, mm -hmm. whether or not this guy's full of shit, he actually <laughs> knows what he's doing. Yeah. Uh, with a lot of tough questions, technical mm -hmm. questions about game making or about the Web3 space. Mm -hmm. And then thirdly, we did this with a number of people, not too many, just a yeah. handful. Mm -hmm. And then we asked ourselves, how are we optimizing for the future? Mm -hmm. Because Andreessen Horowitz and NFX take a 10-year mm -hmm. period of time. That's a long time to be talking to someone every month. Mm -hmm. So you got to make that's sure you like each other. Almost as old as Skyrim. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Skyrim's a great, that is such a great game. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And so our fundraising process was fortunate in the sense that we had good vibe check. We had good technical expertise of, mm -hmm. of this space, the subgenre. And then thirdly, you know, we have a track record. Mm -hmm. And so when you combine those three things, you get a holy trinity like moment, mm -hmm. like this is a good bet. You know, when we got our, our C plus and 10 million in Q4 of last year, we were very fortunate in that Andreessen Horowitz wanted to double down on us based mm -hmm. on what they were seeing. Mm -hmm. And so it's just extra validation. We weren't raising at the time, by the mm -hmm. way, but we are grateful they decided to double down because mm -hmm. it, it demonstrates their confidence. And so our fundraising is likely unique to our situation yeah. and it would be very difficult for most teams to replicate that right. and so i wouldn't recommend that for most teams <laughs> so i'm going to answer your second question sure. it depends mm -hmm. if you don't have a track record but you still worked in games and you worked in a, a very specific discipline for the most part it's unlikely you'll be able to raise in this mm -hmm. environment and so here's my advice I was a guy in a yogurt shop okay, <laughs> with, with not even having worked in the game industry. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I somehow crafted my first game, which mm -hmm. was a commercial success. How is that possible? Well, first of all, I was very aware of the lack of capital I had, mm -hmm. the lack of experience I had. And I share that with you because most people or many people have really ambitious ideas of the first game they want to do. Mm -hmm. Don't do that. <laughs> Instead, focus on what you can afford. Mm -hmm. Find a partner who can help you to build, you know, your low budget game mm -hmm. and get it out to market as fast as you can. And here's why. You're going to get data, then signal. 
Mm -hmm. That's going to help you. Your first game will most likely fail. But if you're really, really, truly, truly wanting to be a game maker, keep doing that and build a group of people who share your passion mm -hmm. and who are willing to exchange blood, sweat equity mm -hmm. to fulfilling your dreams collectively as a group. And then when you start showing some traction, which is hopefully the market responds by saying, oh my God, you have fulfilled a niche market, mm -hmm. but this market is rewarding you with commercial benefits by funding you. Mm -hmm. That is a great story to tell and raise money off of. Yeah. Is this advice for both companies or founders building on mobile and PC console? Or just mobile? It doesn't, ma it, it doesn't matter. I would Got say it. if you're looking for the lowest budget possible, mm -hmm. go mobile. Yeah. Go mobile, maybe PC. But uh, low budget, if I were to do this just with myself and maybe a team of seven or eight people, we could pump out a low budget game and make money. Mm -hmm. I already know that. Mm -hmm. And so that would be my advice for a budding new team that doesn't have a zero to one track record yeah. of either directing or game designing a new game. Let me ask you a sort of devil's advocate type of question, right? So if you look back the last, you know, call it two to four years, there have been a number of studios, actually it's not directly a devil's advocate question, but it kind of segues. There have been a number of studios building primarily for PC or console. They raised a bunch of funding. You know, they, they may have had some traction or some signals, you know, whether through play testing or whatever, that their games would be a success. Sure. And then they rolled out and a number of them have, you know, I don't know if failed is the right word, right? But maybe underperformed expectations. And a number of these were venture backed. Mm. I've talked to a number of people about this phenomenon, some builders, some investors, you know, just, just to hear different folks' thoughts. Sure. Do you think it's still feasible on the PC console side for newcomers to compete, particularly given this dynamic, and then also particularly given that a lot of the games that they're competing with these days have massive yeah. budgets, right? So for example, yeah. if you want to make a shooter game today, you're competing with, you know, bottomless companies and you have to compete with, you know, Call of Duty, Fortnite, et cetera, yeah. which are just yep. sort of evergreen. Um, yep. So I just would love to hear your thoughts on that. That is one of the best questions you've asked today. <laughs> and, I, and I have very strong opinions on this. Thank you. So let me share some bad news first for everyone here. Mm -hmm. It's not enough to make a fun game. Get that out of your head right now. By the way, that is a fantastic but unfortunate point. I, I definitely agree with you. Yeah. So remove that romantic fantasy right now. Kill it. Remove it. Discard it into the dustbin. Because there's so much competition out there. Mm -hmm. Okay? So when I was doing the yogurt shop, I was keenly aware because I was spending all my profits from the yogurt shop to building apps. Yeah. So I became very sensitive to reading the market mm -hmm. and understanding the market, the business opportunity. Mm -hmm. And and where I'm getting at is I didn't realize how formidable that experience was mm -hmm. because it served me well and it served the ventures I've worked on very well. And so here's what I'm going to get to. First, study the market. Mm -hmm. What trends are you seeing? What are some interesting trends? Mm -hmm. Study the market again. What are some interesting low-budget trends? Yeah. You're going to find when you do that, if you're honest with yourself, if you're really honest with yourself, and if you're really paying attention, I'm talking about deep, deep yeah. studying. I'm not talking about spending a week or two looking at some panels yeah. or, you know, reading some research report. No, you're not going to, first of all, <laughs> discard all those freaking research reports. They're not going to help you. Okay. They're going to give you a false sense of knowledge. You have to do this on your own. Mm -hmm. And what you're going to find is you're going to find some gaps in the market. Mm -hmm. And you're also going to find too, 
where there are some big opportunities that you can't touch mm-hmm. because you simply don't have the budget. So right. ignore those, mm-hmm. but at least acknowledge that. That's That could be an aspirational goal. But mm-hmm. instead, look of what's happening on the lower budget side of things. I guarantee you will identify an opportunity. Mm-hmm. I guarantee it if you're paying attention. And so for us as a studio that has experience working with larger teams and a track record of producing commercial success repeatedly, mm-hmm. what that really means for a good investor, if you're looking at us, it means we have developed really good market thinking. And most investors, by the way, don't think that. Mm-hmm. And so to answer your question of how these big games can get funded is because many investors don't have that lens and they are very romantic. Mm-hmm. Therefore, they fund romantic projects. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I didn't have that luxury because mm-hmm. nobody would fund me. Mm-hmm. And so you could think of me as a bit of a cockroach in that case, (laughs) (laughs) but a smart one in terms of reading the markets. And so for us in Osra Games, Mm -hmm. we spend months doing market analysis, our own research, Mm -hmm. hard, hard work. Now I'm talking over a thousand hours of research, Mm -hmm. our own research to identify a new emerging trend. Mm -hmm. When you identify a new emerging trend, you don't have to worry about the competition because you're at the beginning of a new trend and you can write it. Mm -hmm. The problem is for most game developers is they already see these massive trends. What they don't acknowledge, someone already made that trend and they've already rode that trend to the top. You try to copy that trend, you are screwed mm-hmm. because you're coming at the end of the cycle for that trend. That's what I see repeatedly over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. So for us, the game we're designing and why was all very strongly informed by a new trend that we identified. And so we hope in the Western markets, we hope to be one of the first to then make that trend. And so how can builders get the confidence? You know, obviously I think research is part of it, right? But in addition to the research, how else can founders get the confidence that this new trend that they've identified really is one of those trends that can carry their company forward? There's too much responsibility. Instead, do this. Look at the low budget stuff, seriously. Mm -hmm. Study the low budget stuff of why it works. Like literally understand it. It's Mm -hmm. terrible work, by the way, (laughs) absolutely terrible work, boring, terrible, for the most part, uninspiring, (laughs) but that's where most people, that's where they fail. They don't Mm -hmm. do that work. Then you have, you know, other people that do that work. Mm -hmm. And so for my advice for them is I have no confidence you'll be able to identify that initially. Mm -hmm. What I really mean is you're going to have to fail with these low budget tests. Mm -hmm. And when you fail with these low budget tests, you will then hone your ability to identify unmet needs. Mm -hmm. And then in other words, you're escalating and building confidence. But here's the key. You have to survive that to have earned to build that confidence, meaning you're going to fail many times. Mm -hmm. I think that's great advice. And I, yeah, I think that's a great point to segue to sort of the wrap up question. So, you know, obviously you been in the industry for quite some time. You love RPGs. You've been working on them for a while and you're going to continue to work on them. But going forward, you know, what else do you want to accomplish in your career? And what do you ultimately want your impact to be? You know, I ask this question myself all the time mm-hmm. and I have some superficial answers, <laughs> uh, which which I know only scratches. But really for me, it's <laughs> Did you see that video from God? I forgot his name. He's a he's a South Korean like me. Oh my God! He did that Gangnam Style video. Oh yeah, of course. And he had this pressure, immense amount of pressure, where he had to make the second one another hit, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a part of me where I'm very competitive with myself, which is true. I'm yeah. extremely competitive. Mm-hmm. Where I want this game to do better than that game from a metrics perspective. Yeah. But then there's a 
even larger part of me inside where we have identified an opportunity and it lines up with the type of RPG game I've always wanted to build. Mm -hmm. And so for me, this is very personal, uh, this particular, the game that we're building, my ninth mm -hmm. RPG. It's a very personal game where we've all put a lot of ourselves into it. And I've certainly done that as well. And so for me, it's incredibly intrinsically fulfilling for me to finally be in a position where I get to help craft and shape, in my opinion, what I hope to be one of the greatest RPG experiences. And so that gets me up every day. Mm -hmm. I am so passionate about like even the toughest day i am just so grateful that me and the rest of the team we get to pursue building this incredible experience because we know it's a tall order mm -hmm. and sometimes it almost feels impossible and so we push ourselves so hard and we enjoy it so much at the same time but it's so mm -hmm. painful but it's this feeling of fulfillment, man, and having the freedom to pursue that fulfillment. That, that is that is that is priceless, man, for me. I think that's a great answer. I'll definitely be rooting for you going forward and following your story. And we definitely need to coordinate this playtest. I'm excited to get my hands on the game. Chris, I, I want to thank you so much. I can tell, you know, people who are listening, I can see Chris on Zoom. <laughs> I can tell Chris's authentic, deep love for games. Thank you. And it, I, I love talking with people like Chris because we obviously overlap and share right. a deep love and interest in games from a very authentic, soulful place. Mm -hmm. I appreciate it, Mark. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Chris.